Welcome to This Podcast is Not for Profit. Our sector is full of big hearts, tiny budgets, and audacious goals. Join us as we explore the forces shaping the nonprofit sector, speak to experts and innovators, and share stories from the front lines of the fight to end hunger, poverty, and create more inclusive communities. On May 25th, 2020, George Floyd, a 46-year-old black man, died after Minneapolis police officers restrained him by kneeling on his neck during an arrest for allegedly using a counterfeit bill. While people have been fighting for civil rights for generations, Floyd's death stoked the revolution with unprecedented protests and uprisings around the world. In July 2020, the New York Times reported that as many as 26 million people in the United States alone had participated in Black Lives Matter demonstrations in the weeks following the incident. According to scholars and crowd-counting experts, those protests represent the largest movement in the country's history. Structural racism is not an exclusively American issue. In Canada, the shooting deaths of Ejaz Chaudhry and Chantelle Moore in recent months are just two of the many examples that make it impossible to deny these problems are very much our own. The call to end systemic racism remains at the forefront in media headlines and in our hearts and in our minds. As an organization, while we fight for equity and equal opportunities for all in our community, we know that in order to really do the work, we must also acknowledge and situate ourselves in the systemic and institutional racism that persists in Canada. The past few months have been a time of calling in for us, listening to the voices of black activists and community, sitting in the discomfort of difficult conversations, and examining how we can and will do better. In this series, we hear from local activists and experts who share their insight on allyship through both an individual and organizational lens, how the nonprofit sector can adapt in order to better support racialized communities, and the mental health impacts of racism. I hope you enjoy, and I hope that you are able to learn as much as we did from these conversations. I'm here today with Renee Hall. She is currently uh, finishing a Master's of Social Work at McMaster and works at the YWCA as a Violence Against Women and Gender-Based Violence Counselor. She's also a Black Lives Matter activist and has recently released a series of Instagram videos on allyship. Uh, Welcome, Renee. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. Uh, so let's start off just by telling us a little bit about yourself, uh, what you do, uh, your role with the YWCA, and uh, a little bit about your activism, if you don't mind. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so as you mentioned, right now, I actually am in the process of shifting positions um, within the YWCA to take on a role as a violence against women and gender-based violence uh, counselor as part of a, of a funded um, program with the IRCC. So they work with immigrants, refugees, and newcomer um, population to ensure that they get um, 
a reduced access or reduced barriers to accessing services to help them with integration and settlement in Canada. Um, and so what I do is one-on-one -on -one supportive counseling, but I'll also be running um, workshops that are group-based and community-based around um, nuanced experiences of abuse and violence as they relate to a newcomer, um, immigrant and refugee female identified uh, population. So I do risk assessments and safety planning, all that fun stuff. Um, and then I also use that, um, the, the meat or the statistics behind those assessments to create workshops that I feel um, might be generalizable to other immigrant newcomer uh, women. And then before that, I was working um, as part of the transitional living program, also out of the YWC Hamilton, um, working with women who are experiencing um, homelessness and housing precarity. Um, and my role there was as a women's advocate. And so I was helping women with um, supportive counseling as well there, but also housing uh, referrals and ensuring uh, in their brief stay here that when they leave, they have safe, affordable housing uh, within Hamilton and then bridging them, of course, to other community supports. Um, as you mentioned, I am finishing up my master's at McMaster University in the Department of Social Work, um, where I also did my Bachelor of Social Work. And I also come from a background in science from Dalhousie many moons ago. Um, and right now my focus in my master's work or my master's thesis is um, on black feminism. And it's actually particularly looking at um, black femininity and black sexuality and the scripts um, that society kind of places upon black women and how that infiltrates the sexual decision making of young black girls and how we can, um, in a focus group of women that I conducted, reclaim and redefine those things and put that into uh, sex education. And um, lastly, I do a little bit of advocacy work. Um, so I have a Street Eats account. Uh, I'm doing a shameless plug on my Instagram. <laughs> um, it's Street Eats Hamont, where I do um, food equity work. I hit the streets of Hamilton and hand out much needed food items. And I go around and I hand those out to the homeless population in Hamilton. Um, and then I also do one-on-one um, -on -one individual counseling that is uh, Black-focused trauma counseling with uh, folks who need it, um, especially during the time that have arisen recently. Um, and then I recently started doing Instagram videos on uh, allyship. So that's how I do some of my advocacy, apart from attending pro protests and in, uh, you know, doing it in my work, in my day-to-day -day work. Yeah, and, and that's, that's amazing. It sounds like you're doing a lot of really important work that really kind of coalesces around a couple of key uh, key areas. And I actually came across uh, some of your work through these uh, Instagram videos and some of my team uh, at the United Way, you know, um, we're, we're, we were, we've been talking a lot about this. Obviously, you know, this is an issue that has been in the news for a long time. And as an organization, you know, we do a lot of work around equity and, and um and and in these kinds of issues so in response to the kind of ongoing anti-racism protests and black lives matter movement you you've started these series of instagram videos about allyship so what mm -hmm. inspired you to create those videos and what response have you received from viewers so far um so i'm a person who i think uh it just in my personal life 
or in some professional spheres have always spoken um, about allyship just because I wear wear many hats when it comes to the advocacy um, that I do in the work that I do I find that this always becomes a central conversation but um, given everything that has arisen over these last few months I um, I realized that when I was kind of going through my own social media in my personal time I was noticing a bunch of people titling themselves um, with the word ally that I've never actually seen enter an advocacy or like um, anti-black like focused work <laughs> before um, and the ways that they were going about it were actually I felt reproduced um, more harm than good um, and that's what I kind of call like a, a showboating allyship where it's more for oh look I did this thing this means I'm not racist right and it's not actually pushing it forward and so those things really weighed heavy on my mind um just because of my own safety I tend to have these conversations in private spaces with people that I'm comfortable with um but as I was going throughout the day to day and I found it was becoming more and more heavy on my mind and more and more taxing as I was consuming media and trying to keep myself up to date with news I thought to myself you know what I have to address this um just because people know that I do some of this work um and I like to think also yeah um you know have a have an opinion of me that they hold some of the things that I some of the things I say have weight right so I just you know put out a first video um very lightly that was influenced by some some other Instagrammers who are black feminists or do um Black Lives Matter work um and the response that I got was actually overwhelming um people from uh, places that I didn't even know. I, I was getting almost an international reach, a wide Hamilton reach, um, and they were DMing me, just either telling me how much their video had impacted their view of allyship or the work that they're doing, um, or how it ha made them interrogate uh, their sense of self, right? Um, and then realizing the reach that I had, which was a reach that I've never had before, so I think my first video has like close to 7,000 views, um, I was like, whoa, maybe I should extend this conversation. Um, and so I decided to release um, the second video, which was what What type of white are you? Um, Circles of whiteness. And then the third video on organizational allyship, because I wanted to keep the conversation omnipresent and I wanted to keep it going, especially as I saw people of my timeline change back to those pizzas and paninis and less about, you know, Black Lives Matter, right? <laughs> Well, could, could you actually, you know, for those who, you know, don't know, could you actually define what allyship is and what organizational allyship is specifically? Because that is sort of an area that I would definitely like to talk about, um, uh, uh, you know, as a representative of, a, of, a, of, of an organization. Absolutely. So allyship to me, I like to add the word critical um, before it because I find allyship right now is a buzzword. It's a title and a stamp that people give themselves um, that I don't necessarily subscribe to. And I feel like it doesn't actually reflect what true, um, safe, accountable and progressive allyship actually is. So allyship to me comes with the with the um, title of critical allyship. And in critical allyship, it's engaging with a group um, of people that you may not necessarily be a part of in terms of your intersection of identity to work collaboratively um, towards a, a common goal. So that would be like the bare bones um, version of it. 
critical allyship to me looks at the loss of something. So if you're an ally, it's because you probably hold some element of privilege that the group that you are aiming to help or support does not have, right? So if we're talking about um, like Black Lives Matter or engaging in like um, in doing anti-Black racist work, you're probably a person who is not Black. That gives you an, an intersectional or identity privilege. A portion of critical allyship is taking um, or less is lessening your privilege. You're supposed to be losing an aspect of your um, that your that your privilege of your identity affords you. So whether that be time, whether that be money, whether that be voice and space, um, in in engaging in helping this this other identity or this other group that you're an ally to reach the common goal. So a great way that I like to kind of contextualize this is saying um, you're not an ally. If you're taking the words of, say, your um, your black friend and pushing that forward to uh, to an agenda, whether that be maybe a boss, if it's a racist incident um, or or a stakeholder, um, if you're if you're kind of lobbying for something in parliament, you would be a critical ally if you were to not only allow your black friend to share that space with you if they're comfortable to air those grievances, but to help them um to help in creating pathways for them to voice that themselves, right? So you're taking a backseat in that movement to highlight the voice, to create space, um, to create opportunity uh, for, for something or someone else. Um, an ally can also be sharing information, um, if that is the way that you choose to practice your allyship, from an informed place. So when uh, some of the things that were sparking for me on Instagram was seeing people reposting very viable facts, but when I'm looking from where they are reposting from, it is from uh, mainly a white person or a person who is not black. It's not reflecting the opinions, the lived experiences, or the truths of black people, right? So if your form of allyship is sharing information or creating awareness, then it also needs to be done in a way that is minimizing the voices of privileged folks and heightening the voices of oppressed folks, which in turn would be taking a backseat also in your privilege or um, taking a backseat in terms of other people who, who mirror your privilege in terms of identity. So how that seeps into organizational allyship is taking all of those things and putting it within an organization or agency. So it's looking at your policy and procedure, your allocated funding, your philosophies, your philanthropy, um, and being critical about how you decide to partner or develop critical partnerships with other people. Um, and this is looking at seeing if you can use your organization or your agency to be more equitable, to be more diverse, um, and to enhance spaces, voices, um, and, and opportunities for those who typically do not have them or are at the intersections of interlocking sites of oppression because of their identity, right? So whether that be gender or race, um, religion, and other things. Very interesting. So like one of the things that comes to mind for me, you know, when you're in your video, you talk a little, you talk about organizational allyship and you talk about the importance of making sort of tangible, meaningful, purposeful change. And what, what I'm interested in, you know, how, how would you recommend organizations start this journey? Because I think a lot of people are quite overwhelmed and they're used to doing these kinds of, I think you talk about them as kind of the difference between performative allyship and non-optical allyship, right? So mm -hmm. that idea of like, you know, how do you get over that hurdle or, cause I think a lot of people right now are, 
maybe being exposed to some of these discourses for the first time or have been exposed in one form or another and are really sort of, you know, they're well-meaning and trying to sort of participate in this, but are struggling to understand. And especially on an organizational level, I think it's very easy to slip into a kind of, to, uh, into a very much a sort of a surface level sort of, you know, branded form of allyship where you sort of align sort of things. How would you distinguish with that, you know, because you talk a lot about partnerships, right? And and mm-hmm. and making room for those voices and, and and giving something up. So what are some of the steps you would recommend for an organization to do that? Mm-hmm. Um, I find that I think it's a privilege for me as a person who is black to say it's easier said than done because you touch on, um, or not easier said than done, it's actually easier than it seems, um, but... that's also me holding a space that has done this work for quite some time. So I like the fact that you touch upon the fact that this is some of the first time um, that people may even be introduced into this discourse. So it can seem very harrowing. And the first thing that comes to mind is maybe I should just donate to something or throw some money at it. Right. Um, So that is what like, kind of like you had mentioned from my video is uh, performative allyship. Is it helpful? Absolutely. But beyond that one donation, are you extending the conversation or pushing the movement forward? No, right? And if you've patted yourself on the back by, um, you know, just donating and and nothing else, then then I feel like that's only, like, that's a 50% like sticker, right? So the way that people can get into that, I think is actually starting with seeping yourself in the discourse. Um, I think it starts with an interrogation of the self and the interrogation of your organization. Um, because I don't think you can build partnerships um, with, with, uh, diverse communities, um, unless you're coming from a stance that is um, knowledgeable and that is most importantly actually safe to engage in a partnership with, right? So if you're coming from a place where you're ill-informed, um, none of your policies or procedures are reflecting anything that is necessarily anti-racist in, in a progressive term, um, then people may not, one, want to partner with you, or two, in the partnerships, you might actually be spreading more harmful discourse than good, right? So interrogating yourself in your organization's policies in terms of, like, anti-racist policies, what are your hiring policies, what are your processes and procedures, and what informs them, who is informing them? So a lot of organizations like to stamp the fact that they're anti-racist and they're accepting of lgbtqia and et cetera et cetera and in your say you get hired there you'll see a long list of policies and ethics around this what is informing those things and who importantly is informing them are they coming from voices that are reflective of the lgbtqia um you know uh sector? Is it reflective of the black sector or other diverse melanated or racialized sectors to inform your policy and practice? Because often, more often than not, um, it unfortunately isn't. They are very white-centered or Eurocentric policies that are labeled as anti-racist policies. And when you notice in practice, they often tend to benefit particular people, and that te- tends to be privileged folks and continue to disadvantage um, oppressed folks. So I would start there not only interrogate yourself and your own kind of ontology or your worldview when it comes to, um, if we're talking about black people specifically, about blackness, anti-blackness, 
and and uh, and lived experience around that, but then also use those seeds of your own self-interrogation to also interrogate the policies and procedure of your organization. I think that's a great place to start because as you're kind of going through these things and, and, and asking yourself reflective questions, then you can start to see where things need to change. And that's where the tangible change can be created. So if you're interrogating your policies, um, are you realizing, oh, is this a policy change that needs to happen? Is it a programming change that needs to happen. Oh, I'm realizing in in reviewing this policy or programming that we're actually making this service um, inaccessible to a whole community of people. How can we change that, right? How can we increase accessibility? Hmm, I wonder if other people in this organization would benefit from this knowledge. Let's take a look at our um, our anti-racism training or inclusivity training. What is informing that? Who's teaching it? Um, does, a, does a racialized person need to come in and maybe look at auditing this or teaching it themselves in a way that's actually reflective for people to t- walk away with um, other than don't be racist to each other in the workplace, right? Um, look at your hiring processes, you'll notice, um, or your HR processes, and notice if there's even room for diversity or if there's certain screening questions that um, are purposely there to omit people um, from opportunity. And look at your organization's philosophies, the wording of it, the the theory behind it. Can it be? Can there be room for you know change and in integration of other anti-oppressive, um, anti-racist, uh, anti-racist, transnational or feminist theories that can be injected in there? And then use all of those things to kind of decrease the gaps in your service or inform your philanthropy or build these partnerships, right? So I think that that would be step one is almost doing an internal interrogation of your organization, your policies and procedure, and and really looking at the effectiveness of those things, who it's benefiting and who it's not, making the change there. And then going out and attempting to build partnerships. And a lot of that requires research. It's not an easy thing to do. It requires investment um, and money. And it also needs to be mutually reciprocal. So as you're going out to build these partnerships, um, you need to make sure that you're benefiting the community that you're trying to partner with, not necessarily benefiting your organization. Um, so those would be some of the starting building blocks um, before before partnerships can even be built, in my opinion. Yeah, that's super interesting because I think a lot of people get stuck on racism and anti-racism work as being individual, right? They say, I am not a racist, right? And and, and it, it either ends there or maybe it begins there. But I like the fact that you're focusing in on these kind of questions of policies and procedures, these really unsexy things that most people kind of like, (laughs) you know, don't want to think about. But they're really important because it it creates that basic default, right, that and, and that kind of underlying structure that pushes us in particular directions without us actually even realizing that these things are happening. And especially when it comes to things like hiring um, and, and, and other sort of things like that, that, that can really kind of replicate themselves in ways that are invisible and therefore mm-hmm. really difficult to actually resist or to even identify. Exactly. So like, 
I mean, working on your in, internal racist is absolutely great. I'm never going to say it's not, yeah. but it's kind of like you mentioned that collective work that needs to be done for anti-black racism itself to actually end. So while we can all individually say, yep, we're not racist and we're trying to do that in our, our various personal, like interpersonal interactions with people, institutional racism still exists. Systemic racism still exists. And that doesn't actually have to do with the individual, but is ingrained in the policy and procedure that makes that service or that system chug in ways that are inequitable to certain folks, right? Um, so while you, you can interrogate yourself all day, and I would suggest that you do, but you also need to interrogate yourself in place. And what I mean in place is not only in place of your interpersonal interactions with family members and friends, but interactions with your organization and your agency and interactions with other spheres of your life. Because like you're saying, this is like um, this is a network of things that kind of bleed into the various aspects um, of your living uh, that are, are are truly invisible. And the only people who can see it are the ones who are experiencing it. Right. So those who are of a white or privileged identity have the privilege of kind of blinding themselves to the intricate and nuanced ways that oppression and discrimination and racism um, come up in people's lives, covertly especially. Um, and so now with such overt acts of racism happening, right, such as the George Floyd, um, such as the George Floyd incident and protests, it's a unique opportunity for privileged folks to really examine the covert ways um, that racism and discrimination presents itself, where they may be situated in reproducing that and where um, programs and agencies and organizations that they may be affiliated with are also reproducing that. I think that's probably the biggest site of transformation and change. Yeah, no, it's a really good point. And I think in particular, in the nonprofit sector, so much of our work is based in equity and the fight to improve lives of marginalized individuals and communities that it becomes really hard to, to, to sort of locate and situate yourself in that way. And, you know, I know, you know, ourselves as an organization, we're working really hard to embody this on, on a lot of different levels. You know, we've looked at our internal policies and procedures. And right now, you know, we have an equity and diversity group. We're just starting a, a social justice reading group. So to get people mm -hmm. to interrogate those things in, in these kinds of ways. And we're also looking at, at how we fund programs. So we're doing things like shifting towards a more trust-based, flexible funding model that looks mm -hmm. at long-term funding and supports kind of systemic work, advocacy, but I think for a lot of people in the nonprofit sector, it can be really hard to look past the good work that we're doing and the kind of the motivations of it. You know, we're all driven by passion. We're all driven by, in some way, reducing the, that kind of inequity. And I think this can make it really, really difficult for people to understand how we nonetheless fall into structures that perpetuate those kinds of systemic racism or privilege or, you know, all these other things. And I know, you know, you do work with the YWCA and as a social worker, you come across this kind of almost, I don't know if I want to call it default allyship by virtue of this kind of virtue. Mm -hmm. uh, do you have any suggestions about how to talk about those kind of structural, about structural racism in these kind of contexts when individuals don't feel that they are part of those structures because in some way they are resisting them um, through their work. Absolutely. Um, I think it's very important to first and foremost, 
focus that conversation in being educationally based and not debate based because I feel like folks who um sometimes don't always have that willingness to maybe realize some of these things and how it may present either in their work um, or in their day-to-day lives. It's not because they're, they're terrible people, but like you're saying, they have that intrinsic goodness in them and you being the person to tell them that, Hey, maybe it's not the greatest (laughs) um, will really get their back up. Right. Um, There's a part of the fragility that you do um, have to kind of attend to. And and I'm not saying uh, attend to it in a way that is kind of soothing the fragility, but um, being cognizant of it. So you can actually get your message across in a way that is lasting and impactful um, rather than upsetting someone who will then probably won't be absorbing any of the pearls of insight that you're trying to give them. Um, For me, I'm very big in having these conversations, especially if you're a person of color who has to have this conversation with someone and not necessarily using your lived experience as what I'm going to call, I don't know how PC this podcast is, so you might have to bleep me as like trauma porn. (laughs) So I don't think that you need to divulge your lived experience over and over again in every instance of racism to make this provable to somebody. Not only is that... um, not only is that taxing to you as maybe a person of color, um, but it, it, again, doesn't always get the message across and can sometimes present racism or discrimination as isolated individual incidences. So you'll often notice that people come back and say, well, mm, maybe you are overthinking it or maybe that only happened to you, right? Speaking to the collective incidences, the um, maybe even picking an example of policy and procedure. So police brutality would be a great example um, that someone may not have necessarily experienced it, but the statistics, the images and the examples um, are there and you can't deny that. Right. Or using other um, uh, other examples and using that as an entryway to the conversation to unpacking certain things, um, I think, would be the easiest way to, to start this conversation. Um, or kind of using your by proxy examples. So whether or not you've seen this happen to to somebody else, um, or again, in in any example that you can think of, sometimes TV shows cover it, podcasts cover it, um, friends and family that it might happen to, and starting it from an educational standpoint in a way that doesn't um, kind of doesn't kind of push who you're talking to in in a box of, of your racist, I think, externalizing it. Um, before you make it an internal um, conversation is the is the biggest way. So giving them that those those facts first, and then saying and then bridging it into uh, how might this come up in your day to day life? How might you see it? And therefore, how might you be reproducing it? Um, is the way is the way. Um, and then also preparing people and being upfront with the fact that it may be an uncomfortable situation, and recognizing that they might not even actually be ready to have that conversation, right? Um, So that kind of goes back to the circles of whiteness um, video that I was talking about in assessing where people are at to even have the conversation because some people um, are just there to mainly argue and not necessarily grow and learn and transform from a conversation. Um, So seeing where they're at and kind of tailoring your education around that um, is important. I think the circles of whiteness, which is from Muriel Charper on Instagram, is something that I would encourage everybody to go and look at before engaging in conversations with other people around uh, racism and like anti-racist work. 
Yeah, it's really it, really interesting too because I think you know uh, you know we're we're fundraisers, so we often actually rely very much on stories rather than statistics, right? And it's sort of like it's almost a given, right, that you want to impact people by telling a story, an individual story. And I think it's really interesting when when thinking through how to talk about some of these difficult issues. You know, I think it's such a delicate line to walk because, you know, on the one hand, you know, telling someone a statistic that, you know, um, I don't know what it is in Canada, but I recently heard a statistic that in terms of wealth, um, you know, black people in the United States have something like 8% compared to uh, to white people, right? And yeah. And that's really powerful, right? When you look at as a whole, you look at, you know, like that's a huge gap, right? And- mm-hmm versus telling the story of an individual facing these kinds of things and how to walk that line, right? Because it's, it, it is very difficult. And then how to do it in a way where, you know, you're simultaneously not sort of coddling that white fragility, mm-hmm. while also pushing people out of their boundaries and recognizing that for some people, they're really... They just don't know. They don't know how to talk about it. They don't want to say the wrong thing. They're anxious mm-hmm. about uh, about it, and 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 it, that comes from a very honest and genuine place. And mm-hmm. and 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 so doing it in a way that you know, like it's incredibly difficult. Yeah, I find that um, I bumped up a lot of, uh, about a lot of this actually in my undergrad in social work, and it was in my anti-oppressive uh, practice class where I was completely shocked at the amount of um, white white fragility that was in the room. One, people, um, the way that I guess some of these stories, because the the majority of it was through like video and very like emotionally impactful content that was was being given. And this also happened to touch upon mainly anti-Black and anti-Indigenous racism. Um, So half of the room was like um, white folks like crying. Like they knew some of this was there, but they didn't fully understand the impact of it, right? And they needed some of that that lived lived experience, I yeah. guess, to really contextualize it and bring it to life. And then the other half was just a mere shock of not even knowing that it that it exists, right? And there, that's when I was thinking to myself, I'm just like, how, and this is in a room of people who are, are becoming emerging social workers, right? Yeah. I'm like, how do we go out and work with these diverse populations if, if the entry point to this conversation is even proving that racism exists? Um, I think that is... The, the hardest part um, because a lot of where people are spending their energy with folks is proving that it exists. I think we're very much so beyond that conversation. Um, and again, in the, me, this is me speaking from a privileged standpoint of doing this work for, um, for a little bit is that I actually don't um, entertain those conversations. I point people in directions where they could gain resources and knowledge about that before having a conversation with me about it because it's taxing for me to just have to present you with a bunch of typically it's going to have to be examples to prove that racism exists to then have a conversation about allyship or how it can present in you know in your interactions and things like that um so i i agree with you it is a fine and dance like it's a it's a hard line um to dance around because you're right there is a whole subset of the population that doesn't even understand um, that this is an issue who is supposed to be educating them is still an answer it's still a question that I have in my mind Um, but I know uh, if it comes to the protection and the safety and the energy and the preservation preservation of black folks um, that it shouldn't and doesn't have to be us you know well and and I think I mean it 
you touched upon it a little bit, but I think there's that sort of expectation of being taught by, <laughs> you know, by people that we discount the emotional toll that that has. And, and as you said, like, you have to kind of move on if you want to have a deeper discussion about this. I mean, it's got to be exhausting to have to sort of just prove something as basic as racism exists. Right. Yes. And I think in, in- I also believe that's why this this whole movement um, hasn't gotten pushed very far because we've been spending time proving that yeah. these things are happening to us, that it's it's a real thing instead of spending that time um, on actually making strategies and change and targets. Sure. Right. Yeah. And it reminds me very much of the way that we often put, put uh, women and people who have been abused in relationships and put the onus on them to prove or we, we by default discount, we discount that. Right. And it's I think it's a, a similar kind of uh, position. And, and it's really unfortunate because it does prevent exactly what you were saying, those kind of deeper conversations about, OK, well, what next? How do we get beyond this? What are those structures and policies and procedures? And like, you know, which is the real locus of reproduction for these kinds mm-hmm. of inequities. So I think for me, it's not necessarily to kind of circle back to your question. It's not necessarily about how to start those conversations. I would actually put the onus on um, those who are in the spot of being uncomfortable. I think if you are entering a conversation specifically about racism and you are inherently uncomfortable or something is stirring up within you or you have um, a bunch of questions and the conversation needs seems to be a bit more um, advanced not the word I'm looking for, but beyond what what you know in that moment, then I think it is the onus is on you to take that away and go and reflect and and be a learner. Arm yourself with whatever resources you need to arm, knowledge and research to get yourself up to speed with what the conversation is and then enter the table. You know what I mean? To have a collaborative conversation with other people. And I think it's, and you can ask people for where maybe to find those resources because you might not know where to start. And that's a great way for maybe racialized or non-racialized folks to help you out in a way that isn't necessarily taxing and doesn't involve um, us having to give us your lived, give us your lived, our lived experience for you to understand something, right? So if you're coming from a place of what I'm going to call self-awareness and you're saying, wow, this feels weird to me or I don't understand this conversation or I feel uncomfortable having this conversation, you need to step away and ask yourself why, number one what's underpinning those things and then what you might need to do to turn those feelings around, right? And if you need help turning those feelings around, you can ask for help in where to find those resources and then come back and the conversation can be continued in a in a safe space for all. And I think a bit of doing that work um, on your own, while it can definitely be isolating, you can reach out to other white folks who you, who you may know have been engaging in this work um, or go and look for white folks who have engaged in this work for resources if it makes you feel a bit better to talk with other people of your of your own identity so you don't feel like you're offending, say, um, a black person if you go to them and ask them questions or whatever, um, and then expand your search that way. But it also creates a safe environment for yourself um, so you don't feel like you have to get your back up um, or you feel nervous about uh, asking questions. Um, 
or because you're reflecting kind of on your own in a safe space at at your own pace. And I feel like people will be more willing to do that work, that initial work, um, than if they feel like they're being attacked. Because I often feel that people who are already in that position of not really knowing, the minute you throw some knowledge at them, they feel attacked, right? Yeah. And and nothing yeah. productive can come out of that. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and okay, so for my sort of last question, I often on my podcast, I ask, I have a kind of a magic wand question. So if you had a magic wand or unlimited budget, what would you do to improve our community and why? Oh my gosh, that's a very good question. <laughs> um, that is a good question. I mean, if I had a magic wand and a magic budget, okay, well, if I had a magic wand, none of this would be happening. But yeah. <laughs> if I have, if you I ask, it's the why, though. It's the why that's important, yeah. right? Yeah. Like, um, if I had like a magic wand and unlimited funding, um, actually my like personal professional dream in this lifetime or the next is to open up um, a community organization, something grassroots that maybe becomes a bit more formalized, um, that has all the money in the world to kind of fill fill those service gaps or those resource mm-hmm. gaps for communities in need um, and for especially with for communities that have intersecting um, identities that enhance, you know, their interlocking sites of oppression and discrimination and racism, um, creating a safe space for you to come, you individually, your family or your community and access things like, um, I don't know, healthcare, employment counseling and services, VAW um, work, if that is it, housing, um, almost like this wraparound community uh, service that is actually specific for uh, racialized um, community members and individuals, because I find there's nothing like that out there that is a wraparound interdisciplinary service. There is, it's there in piecemeal forms. So maybe there'll be um, VAW counseling work, like what I do specific for immigrant or newcomer women. Um, But then that also leaves out, say, women who are non-status or women who aren't immigrant to newcomer or refugee women, right? But still may be racialized. Um, Or it could be employment counseling for black youth. Um, But then what about the socioeconomic pieces, the health pieces and things like that? So for me, it would be a a big wraparound, like hug of a service that um, as we're able to either provide that resource to you or refer to other places where we can spread some of our funding to make that possible. um, Someone can step out um, of our service within time, um, feeling like they've accessed not only equitable and equal support, but they are now on a foot forward to kind of fulfill a life um, of determination that is like, in line with whatever they want, right? So it's not a prescriptive service, um, but it would be, hey, let me help you set up with all the things that you feel you need to be successful, and then you go in and you go and get that coin, or you go and get that success, right? And it would be specific for 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 racialized folks because um, there's nothing like that out there um, for them right now. Definitely not a wraparound service, um, and even in the kind of the siloed services that they are that there are, they're so underfunded um, that they're doing such amazing work. But it's not being able to you know, push um, to a community-wide impact like they would hope um, because there's not enough money and there's not enough network and partnerships, right? That's so interesting. I mean, that's like, because that's that's definitely something that, you know, as an organization, 
as we're working on our new investment framework and as we're working on the way that we invest in programming, that's definitely a lens that we take. And, and, and I would share the same sort of magic wand slash unlimited budget in terms of, mm-hmm. you know, when, cause it comes down to funding these kinds of things, right. And being Absolutely. able to, uh, to make those connections and to sort of do that, um, that kind of wrap around, uh, individuals in a way that really reduces those barriers in a profound way. So I'm really glad to hear you say that because that that's something that you know we're we're really working on as an organization to bring to life. But you know it does take that you know it it takes significant resources. It takes uh, it takes um, you know a, a lot of different community partners. It takes a lot mm-hmm. of buy-in. Uh, but I, I agree. I couldn't agree more that it, it's so necessary and and so impactful. Yeah. And like, it just, for me, everything that I do, whether it be my wishes with magical wands or the present work that I'm engaging in now, I, I always hold kind of like a proverb or a, a people think of it more of like a cliche now. Um, but this was what I was raised with because I come from an Afro-Caribbean background. It takes a village, right? Like it takes yeah. a community. It takes a partnership. And honestly, nothing can be done without it. If we were to wipe all the money in the world away, right? Um, there's no money for anyone for anything to get done, we would need to work together, right? So funded or not funded, I'm very big on building interdisciplinary, like collaborative networks to push things and prioritize things on the agenda, right? So if all many voices are saying the same thing from different sectors, someone at some point is going to listen and hopefully put the money there, right? We can all lobby together, engaging those powerful stakeholders, but you can't do that um, alone, unfortunately. It takes everybody who needs to kind of be on the same page. Yeah. Wise words, wise words. Um, well, thank you so much for taking your time and uh, sharing uh, sharing your perspective on all of this. Uh, you know, I hope our listeners can really sort of take some of this to heart. And uh, and I want to thank you for all the work that you do in the community, both in your nonprofit and uh, and in your advocacy work. It's really uh, it's it's really important that people uh, take take heart of this. And as you said, don't just leave it personally, take it into your organizations, take it into those places and uh, and make sure that uh, that we interrogate those practices uh, in, in an important way. So thank you very much. Yes, thank you. If this does anything for anyone, I hope it just helps you sit and reflect with yourself in the places um, that you may be working for and with and, and see if you can create some sustainable change um, collectively and, and individually. I'm very excited to be here and thank you so much for this opportunity. You guys are doing such amazing work as well, too. continue to bring the unignorable issues affecting our community to the forefront. I would like to thank all of our guests and dedicated listeners. This podcast was brought to you by United Way Halton and Hamilton. Stay social with us and keep the conversation going by following us at United Way HH on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and United Way Halton and Hamilton on LinkedIn and YouTube.